Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC interviews. After a couple of weeks off over Easter, we're raring to go. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to be joined by Ken Watton, Head of Public Equity Investments at Gresham House. Ken has worked in financial services for over 25 years, or 26 on my count, first training as an accountant and then as a research analyst. He spent a decade at Livingbridge, where he headed their quoted market investments with a focus on smaller companies, and is now co-manager of Gresham House UK Microcap Fund, Gresham House UK Multicap Income Funds, and manages aimlisted portfolios on behalf of Barronsmead VCTs. He is also manager of Strategic Equity Capital Trust, a position he has held since September 2020. Ken, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Well, that's a lot of funds there pinned to your mast. Um, I wondered how you split your time across them. Well, we don't we don't sort of timesheet ourselves and <laughs> allocate sort of certain percentages of time to individual funds. We 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 operate very much a team based approach. So uh, there's a team of five of us who are managing the, all the public equity funds, and whilst my name might be on on various different uh, different vehicles. It's the team of five plus a wider private equity team of twenty people within Gresham that that gets involved in in all elements of the investment process. So I'm sort of taking a strategic lead on on those funds with my name on it. But um, you know, I, I put my time where it's where it's needed, and, and uh, we have a lot of resource. Yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a mean first question. <laughs> um, but all the f- a lot of the funds are specifically small cap. The multi cap fund one does look like it's got a bit of a small cap bias. What's your outlook for UK small caps at the moment? It's been a bit of a trickier environment. They've underperformed larger caps over the past year. What's your sort of state of play now? Yeah, look, so I think, first of all, we're in an environment happy for the last five years plus that where UK equities appear to be undervalued or, or at least trading at a material discount to other developed markets. And then within that, you've got what I wouldn't say it's completely structural because there are points in, in, in the market cycle where, where it changes. But for most most of the last few years, UK smaller companies have traded at a material discount to, to larger UK listed companies. So we're in a, an area which I think is structurally undervalued. And therefore, if you're selective and you can find high quality companies um, that, that are sort of have, suffering from, a, I guess, a valuation discount by virtue of the asset class they sit in, then that could be a really exciting place to, to find good sort of a long-term opportunities to to make money so um you know that that's the kind of big picture the 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 current market environment is volatile there's lots of uncertainty macroeconomic and geopolitical so you know it, it it's an environment where there are lots of challenges and you have to be very mindful to try and avoid banana skins on individual companies but the quid pro quo for that is that actually the volatility in the market is throwing up some really interesting exciting uh, sort of entry points for businesses that uh, where you can sort of see through the the short term transitory factors and where you've got good long term opportunities to uh, to grow and to 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 take share or to or to grow margins and, and expand value. So uh, this I, I look at this environment with a glass half full and think that this this is a great time to be making long term investments. Great. And when you say valuations are, are cheaper relative to larger caps, what? How do you value companies? What are your preferred valuation metrics? Because there are mm. there are different ways to look. Yeah, at we, it. we we typically use um, either earnings or, or cash flow based multiples, to, um, and we typically look at you know, try, on an individual company basis. What what is the right metric to value this business on? And we, we will try and take our cue on that from 
how private equity would look at, at a, buying a whole company or how trade buyers would, would value a whole business. So it might be, uh, it might be free cash flow, it might be EBITDA, it might be EBIT, it, it could be net earnings, it depends on the individual company and what the, sort of typically the, the precedent where valuing a business in that space would, would, would be. Um, we look at the multiples that we're paying today for, for that, that uh, particular earnings metric. And then we look at what we think that, that metric can do over the life of our investment. And then what we think a fair multiple will be for those earnings if certain things happen that, uh, as, as we predict um, in, in, in three, four, five years' time when we, when we come to exit. So we try to bridge the, the earnings multiple today and the earnings and the earnings multiple in, in three to five years' time and, and sort of look at how we can make returns between those two numbers. If we look at strategic equity capital um, in particular, or, uh, what proportion of the holdings are profitable? Um, well, all of the, the, the companies that are, sort of have underlying profitable business models, there are a couple in the, in, in the portfolio that are temporarily not profitable because of issues to do with COVID. So, for example, we have a holding in a company called Hostel World, which is an online travel agent that focused specifically on the, the niche market of people who are going to stay in, in, in hostels. Um, obviously. For, uh, because of COVID and, and the disruption both to tr- sort of travelling um, and, and the travel restrictions, but also people's people's desire to travel, and that business has been interrupted materially. It has has cash on the balance sheet. It's, it's it recapitalised itself during COVID, so we think it can trade through to to uh, sort of survive when markets recover. But temporarily, it's it's not profitable. But most most businesses are profitable. Which we're, we're, we're largely seeking profitable businesses when we invest. Yeah. You mentioned macro factors earlier when talking mm-hmm. about the climate for investing. I wondered to what extent it factors into decision making. And I ask this because it feels like we're in quite a different world from a couple of years ago. Inflation is up, war in Europe, spectra of high, higher interest rates. It does sound like you very much have a stop pricking approach, but has the macro landscape um, changed either your investment criteria or led to any buy or sell decisions? So the, we don't make investments based on sort of trying to position ourselves explicitly for particular macro uh, situations and we, so and we don't change our sector weightings or, or such like um, as a result of our, our view on the macro we try to uh, I guess be agnostic about macroeconomic factors um, and try to, to pick high quality companies where either because they have structural growth drivers in their markets or because they have a, a specific competitive advantage that, that we think can endure or because there are uh, specific self-help things that they can do, which will unlock value in in, in the individual company, that the, and that those factors will be more powerful than than the wider economy. So whilst I'm not saying that our companies are immune to wider macro factors, they, our portfolios overall should be uh, more resilient and less impacted by big macro factors than than the wider market would be. So um, in in terms of what we've changed as a result of the current environment. Um, well, I've, I've made one recent change um, on the back of the, the geopolitical factors, and that, that was a, a company called Hive, which is a global exhibitions business. Um, and it's a business which had, uh, does have a material exposure to Russia. So one of its biggest shows is in, is in Moscow. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a business which, uh, it, again, it's been impacted by COVID and travel restrictions and, and uh, and the propensity of people to go to face-to-face meetings. And just as it's been recovering from that, the, the Russia-Ukraine thing has hit. And we figured that just the risk profile now is too great. They've, they've subsequently said that their 
uh, exiting their Russian operations, but they are a material part of the business, and we're sort of then concerned about what the ramifications of that would be for its balance sheet. So it's a mm. fundamental change to the investment uh, case of that company, and not something we necessarily would have would have been able to predict. Um, but in terms of of things like interest rates and and uh, inflationary cost pressures, it's clearly something that we're very mindful of. It's something that we talk to the company's management teams about, and it's you know it's an area where we're really sort of doubling down in terms of our risk assessment and kind of reevaluation of of the companies. But we typically investing in companies that have pricing power that, as I said before, have structural drivers or or, or a strong competitive advantage, and we think they're they're well placed to manage um, sort of whatever comes to them from the macro space. Yeah. Now. You you took over the management, as I said earlier, of Strategic Equity Capital in September 2020. Uh, in your latest interim report, it says since then you fully exited nine investments and initiated um, positions in seven new holdings. What, but but also that there have been no fundamental changes in strategy. What would you say that the changes have been? So when I took took over managing the trust, which was September 2020. Um, what I said at the time is that the strategy of the trust was was uh, you know, as we wanted it to be, what what it, what it stated that it does, um, and that there was nothing, no fundamental changes we we needed to make to the to the portfolio positioning. However, um, that over a period of, of twelve to eighteen months, we would evolve the portfolio gradually and to try and position it more towards companies in the range of of uh, one hundred to three hundred million market cap where we think there's a structural opportunity uh, undervalued companies less well researched and where we think we have a competitive advantage and then um and also companies of that size where we can take bigger equity stakes and because the trust is uh, you know explicitly a concentrated portfolio of, of of companies where we're seeking to not just pick good companies but also actively engage with them to to try and sort of add value in, in whatever way we can uh, where, where you have a larger equity stake in the company that that gives you a real platform to be able to do that engagement so what we've done over that period has been to exit some of the larger market cap holdings in the portfolio but, but uh, we've done that you know with a, with a view on the valuation and the, and the returns that we, we expect to see so we've, we've sold a number of holdings that were I guess you could call them COVID winners, where where they they'd been in sectors which had been relatively resilient in, in during the pandemic, and where the market had sort of given them an extra rating kicker as a result of that resilience. And and so we'd sold companies at high ratings, the larger market caps, and then reinvested the proceeds of those into some of the smaller cap uh, names, either existing names within the portfolio or, or new companies which were on lower valuations. So that's that's kind of so it's it's, it's been more to do with. The big divergence in sector and company performance from share price perspective since since COVID, yeah. rather than as fundamentally changing the strategy. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think um, when I looked, SEC had eighteen holdings. The other funds have sort of high forties. Would yeah. you expect the more concentrated portfolio to have more volatility in its nav? Uh, I guess it has the potential risk of of well, it has greater stock specific risk because it's taking. Uh, a much more concentrated uh, um, approach to to investing. It's doing that, leveraging the the benefits of the closed end uh, investment trust structure relative to the open ended funds that we manage above other clients. It will have more volatility to the extent that the individual holdings that it holds uh, are, are more volatile, and it's our job to try and pick businesses that are going to you know, at least double our money over the, over the three to five year time horizon that we're looking at. Um, and we're less concerned about 
short-term volatility and share prices are much more concerned about the, the long-term value creation we can make. And because we're avoiding some of those more cyclical parts of the market and some of the, the sectors which are inherently more volatile, you know, we, we think that you know, compared to other funds in the sector we managed by, by our peers, it should be more, more should be less volatile, and that, that's that's what we have experienced over time. But clearly, in any individual period, if you have one share price which moves dramatically because of a takeover or because of a profit warning or something, then you know, that will affect the volatility of the overall fund. Mm. What's the largest um, proportion of any one company that you own? You said that you've gone mm-hmm. down the market cap yep. spectrum, um, and, uh, and how quickly could you sell it if something went wrong? <laughs> yeah, so we're. We don't have a, a limit other, other than that we would be limited by the takeover rule. So we wouldn't own more than 30% of a company because, because uh, we don't want okay. to be sort of triggering a mandatory offer for the business. But um, yeah, we, we, so we don't have a hard limit in, uh, other than that on the equity state we can take. In fact, you know, we, we, we think it's desirable. We're tra- trading off, you know, there's a trade off between liquidity, influence, and, and, op- and, and value opportunity where we find something which we are. You know, have high conviction will will give us a, a really attractive return, and then we want to own as much as we we can of it within reason within the the the, the overall portfolio construction. So, the equity stake is is just an output of of getting the right position size for the fund in a, in a company we have high conviction in. And so, yes, there is, uh, I guess, a liquidity constraint for, for having a large equity stake. But the other side of that is that you have a lot more influence over the companies, and um, you know often we find that some of our businesses, you know, our exit will be through a trade sale or, or a takeover of the company, the whole company. Um, in which case, by having a large equity stake, you know, we are in the conversation around what the price is, whether or not the company should be sold, and we don't get businesses we really we really like taken out at prices which we don't like because and where we can't do anything about it. We we we're, we're typically in the conversation with the management team, the board, and and any potential bidders. And frankly, if, if if we don't want to sell, then it might well prevent the whole thing from happening. Would you consider yourself an activist investor? I, I like to make the distinction between activist investors and and actively engaged investors. We're definitely the latter. So we 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 are actively engaged with the management teams and the boards of the companies we invest in, but we're not activists in the in the the sort of sense that people think of with you know, where we're trying to find turnaround situations and get heavily involved and be aggressive and fire people. That's not what we're trying yeah. to do. We want to find good quality businesses with good teams that we can work with. But we we believe because of the private equity uh, heritage that we have as a team, because of the private equity business and network that we've got within Gresham House, there, there are usually ways that we can engage with those businesses to help them, whether that be uh, giving them advice on strategy and governance or, or, or potentially making introductions to other organizations or people who can help them to execute their strategy, then if we see that opportunity, we'll do that. And if, if we've got a good team who are open to influence and can recognize the value of it, then hopefully they're, they're, they're more than happy if we do do that. Yeah. How, um, how comfortable would you be with the fund getting in size? Because as it gets bigger, it would be harder to have yeah. such a concentrated portfolio of small companies. Sure. So I think uh, we, we think the, the strategy scales to around about half a billion so it's currently the the um portfolio or the, the trust is about 200 million of nav so we think it, it's got considerable capacity to grow from where it currently is without materially changing what we do um, and still mm-hmm. sitting within that core small cap part of the market where that where you know, there are lots of opportunities there are under research underappreciated opportunities and where we have the network and the skill set to get involved and to, to hopefully add value so Five five hundred. I'm comfortable. I think you know you you wouldn't. This couldn't be a ten billion pound strategy. 
much as I'd like it to be. <laughs> <laughs> I slightly asked that because of the Odyssean bid that mm-hmm. came yeah. um, towards the end of last year, but it, it looks like for now that's behind you. I <laughs> um, believe it's behind us. That's certainly the, the board have supported us continuing as an independent manager and uh, um, as far as I'm aware, there's no sort of intention for Odyssean to, to come back. But. Yeah. Can you give me some examples of what your favourite holdings are or the investment case for for any of the ones you think look particularly promising. Yeah, so if I talk through some of our, our, our larger holdings, because it's a high conviction fund, we try to put the most capital behind the ideas we have the highest conviction in, therefore, by definition, the things which are the largest size positions in the fund you know, should be our highest conviction ideas. Um, so we, we have a, a big big stake um, and a big position in a company called Medica, which is a an outsourced teleradiology business so it's in the healthcare space um and it's taking advantage of um what is a structural undersupply of qualified radiologists in the uk market um and globally in fact um structural undersupply of qualified radiologists and an increasing demand for for imaging as a component of of, uh, diagnosis and also in in in, uh, increasing in clinical trials for for new drugs so they they have a platform and a position whereby they they em- employ and and engage with um, trained radiologists who can interpret scans in all sorts of different areas. They they sell that service into the NHS. So if a hospital has uh, doesn't have available radiologists on call at any given time, then they can go to to Medica. Medica can provide that that service to to support the clinical process. Um, so it's an area uh, which because of that structural uh, driver in the market is not particularly cyclical area and it's an area which we think you know, there's likely to be a double digit growth for, for a considerable number of years. They've relatively recently moved into the clinical trial market so they were focused on, on the NHS. They, they've, with our support, have diversified their, their business, made an acquisition of a US business called RADMD which is selling a very similar service but into the clinical trial market so sort of tapping into that big structural growth area of, of pharmaceutical outsourcing, which, which we believe is, a, is a, an attractive long-term uh, area of the market to try and find opportunities to invest in. And they also have a business in Ireland, which is similar to the UK business, but sort of a, f- a few years behind in terms of development. Therefore, you know, we, we see uh, you know, good, good scope for growth there. The reason why we like it, it's, got a, it's a high quality management team. It's, a, it's a not a cyclical market. It's a structural uh, growth area where they have a strong market position. Uh, it's a very it's a capital light business model, so it's it can grow without having to consume lots of capital to do it, um, and therefore it can generate cash, which will either go to to, uh, to to shareholders or can be reinvested to 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 grow through acquisition. Um, it's an area where technological changes uh, is really sort of potentially a catalyst to accelerate the business or, or reinforce their market position. So through things like AI and machine learning. Being applied to, to the interpretation of, of scans can massively incre- increase the productivity of the, of the radiologists, um, so they can do more. But again, when you've got a structurally undersupply market, that's that's beneficial. You know, we think that over time, as as the business grows and, and sustains a, a premium growth rate, as it diversifies away from the NHS, which it's doing, and, and as it increasingly uses technology to to underpin what it's doing, it, it can deserve a material re-rating. And then the confidence we have about the racing is also underpinned by observing private equity transactions in the same in the same space. So, you know, a close competitor of uh, of the business 
has recently been taken, uh, gone through a private equity management buyout at, at a EBITDA multiple, which is a material premium to the multiple that, that Medica trades on the public market. So we think mm-hmm. there's, you know, if the public markets don't don't re-rate it, then we think there's an opportunity for you know, somebody to, to come in and to explore that arbitrage, which we've seen a lot over the, over the last couple of years in the public markets. Yeah. How um, significant do you think M&A is for the investment case, the type of companies you're investing in? So it looks like you bought River Mercantile just before. Yeah, Shrewsbury's um, bid. Yeah, good well, timing. We, well, we 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 invested in River Mercantile after Asset Co had taken a small stake in the business, and we, we could we could see that that was you know, a catalyst to evaluate the different components of the business, and we could see a really clear some of the parts sort of opportunity where the solutions business and fiduciary management business. And the asset management businesses were put together, both both independently interesting businesses, but not being valued by the public markets uh, at what each of them would probably be worth if they were if they were separate. So we felt that there was an opportunity either to the business to tell the story better, or to divest or one of the other one or other of the of the divisions. And as it happens, they divested one business, the fiduciary management business, to Schroders, and then Asset Co have, have acquired the, the the asset management business, which has sort of unlocked the value. So. Probably would have liked to have had a bigger stake before before that happened, and it happened a lot quicker than we anticipated. But the, the thesis has played out. In answer to your question about M and A, in terms of exits for our our holdings, you know, we don't invest in companies just you know, explicitly because we think this this company will get taken out on a, on a short term view. We're long term investors, but we are looking for um, companies that either have strategic value. Uh, in their industry and where we think the market isn't 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 factoring that in properly, or they're companies that can build strategic value over time, and so we we, we think we're pretty well plugged in through our private equity business and, and and our our heritage in that area to sort of to know what private equity or trade buyers are looking for and what they value highly, and, and if we can find those characteristics on the public markets sort of at a, at an undervalue relative to what we think the fundamentals should should be worth. Then, if the stock market doesn't eventually appreciate them, then you know, there's an alternative way for for that to be realised through a takeover. So we're not explicitly going for takeovers, but inherently the kind of companies we like typically are attracted to private equity and trade as well. Mm-hmm. Do you worry about the best quality UK PLCs leaving the stock market? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I think look, there's there's been a a, a, a whole spate of takeover offers in the UK market, not just in small cap, right across the market cap spectrum over the last couple of years. And I think one of the main reasons for that has been what I said at the beginning, which is the UK equity market looks undervalued relative to, to other developed markets. And then you've got a, a, a further discount for UK small cap. But within that very broad sort of categorization, you have a whole host of different interesting businesses in structurally growing areas. And with high quality fundamentals and where 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 you've got a UK domicile and listed business but which has got international scope and might have more than half its operations in the US and it's being valued like a UK small cap when private equivalent businesses are going for much higher multiples in the private markets you know, there's a clear arbitrage there and it's our job to try and spot the opportunities um and yeah we we don't want every good quality company to get taken out obviously but um you know, ideally, the, these businesses will be re- re-rated as public companies, and their their value will be appreciated by the market. But at the moment, you know, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities which are not. Well, that's not the case, and some of them are, are getting exploited by private equity. 
However, there was a lot of IPOs in the last two years as well. So there have, yeah. has been some replenishment of, of good quality companies. Do you participate in IPOs? We, we have historically participated in, in, in IPOs. We think because of our touch points in private markets, we've got a very good opportunity you know, in the sectors where we focus and the types of companies we'd like to, to evaluate those businesses and reference them through our network. So whether it be the, the, the management teams or the track record of the company, you know, often we can find people that we know and trust who've you know, interacted with those businesses, can reference the people or possibly even bought or sold those, those, those same businesses in the past. So we can get a good insight into the quality of the, of the businesses and the people, which maybe other public market participants would, would be less able to do. So we're, we're quite comfortable investing in IPOs, but we are very selective about it, as we are with all of our portfolio. You spoke about some structural growth areas earlier. It looks like healthcare and financial services might be the sectors that you see the most opportunities in. Just looking at your fact sheets, do you think that's fair? They, they, those areas are areas which are sort of heavily weighted within the SEC portfolio at the moment. I, I tell us they are areas we like, definitely. There are areas where there are, there are, there are structural growth opportunities and, and changes happening in those markets, which be beneficial to the right companies. They're not the only ones which we, we focus on. I think the, the, the sector weightings in, in, in a trust like SEC because of the concentration is much more sort of a function of the bottom-up stocks that we, we specifically pick rather than a sort of deliberate attempt to, yeah. to, to have a certain weighting in a certain sector. But those areas you mentioned, so healthcare services, particularly uh, companies that are playing into the pharmaceutical outsourcing trend and, and you know, where there's billions of dollars being spent on on services and technology that can support the drug development process. I think we think that's a long-term opportunity and we, we sort of have, have a number of investments, both public and private across Gresham House that play into that theme. In, in financials, we, we think pensions and wealth management, uh, the IFA sector, there's a lot of consolidation going there on there. There's lots of regulatory drivers making things changing and, and the driving economies of scale. So there's lots of opportunities to find businesses that are on the right side of some of these big trends in that in that space which which we can can make money for our investors out of but we also like things like e-commerce but particularly businesses that are that are selling into the the, that that channel shift so not necessarily the retailers themselves but businesses that are suppliers into the into that uh into that change so we we had a investment in clipper logistics which is a third-party warehousing logistics supplier but specifically set up to to support e-commerce businesses but also multi-channel businesses that are shifting towards e-commerce so they they would they do all the returns for asos in the uk so it's a pure play online retailer but also they do they they, they manage the click and collect activity for john lewis so it's a traditional retailer but moving moving more into into e-commerce as a part, as a portion of its overall mix and again big mm. tr- structural shift finding the right business that's doing the right things that, that are sort of capitalizing on that trend is where we where we like to play how many companies um pass through your filtering system for you to look closely at them? Because if you've got a portfolio as concentrated as 18 holdings. Yeah. It's... We see hundreds of companies a year but as, in, as, as, a, as a wider team. So we will we'll meet you know, four or 500 companies a year in terms of company meetings. So, and I think it's important, particularly in small cap, to you know, see the whites of the management's eyes and actually we'll see the end of their Zoom call if it, in, in the last couple of years and, and actually hear from the horse's mouth you know, how they articulate their strategy and what they're trying to do. So... You know, that is a resource-intensive process, but we have our own proprietary screening models, which particularly focus on areas, you know, I guess, proxies of quality. So things like margins, free cash flow generation, uh, 
earnings growth, return on capital, balance sheet leverage, the, 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 all, the, all these the sort of financial characteristics which would indicate that there's that there's a quality company there. They don't all have to be sort of perfect, but it's a good sort of way of, of trying to, I guess, filter down from lots and lots of companies we could invest in down to a relatively small number we end up actually investing in. I thought it was quite interesting. In, in your report, it said SEC will not invest in extractive sectors such as oil and gas and mining, nor balance sheet financials, banks, insurers, as the manager believes that success in these businesses is often driven by macro factors like commodity prices, which is quite interesting because lots of people do it for ESG reasons yeah. <laughs> um, instead. But theoretically, why, why rule anything out? We try to focus on areas that, A, we understand and have expertise in and have a network where, you know, which as a core part of our research process is to go go to our network and try and find genuine experts and and operators in those sectors or or, or, or situations that can help us to validate our, the judgments we're making when we make an investment. So you know, we have really well developed networks in certain sectors, oil and gas, mining. Those those are areas which we we've never invested in and, and therefore don't have those same networks. Now, could we build them? Possibly yes. But as you rightly pointed out, the other the other reason why we try to avoid some of those sectors is because they have big cyclical external factors that are outside the control of the management teams of those companies and an our area of competence so i, I can't i'm not an expert on the oil price and i and i wouldn't want to try and call where it's going to go but you know an oil and gas company it can that could be the difference as to whether that we make money out of investment in that sector or not so we'd rather remove big external risks which can drive volatility and can can uh, make or break the investment case without it as really being able to assess it effectively and focus on those areas where we're backing a strategy and the management team who can and the execution risk of that strategy is is one of the key risks and then we have to try and work out why we believe that that execution risk is worth taking rather than trying to call the oil price yeah that makes sense well i'm afraid we're running out of time but a few Light-hearted questions for us to finish on. What do you, if there was one thing you wish you had known when you started being a fund manager, what would it have been? Gosh, that's interesting. Um, I, I think you know, the thing that I've learned over, over the years, which you know, perhaps I could have, if I could advise myself from 15, 20 years ago, so, so what to do is, is to back your own judgment, but, but also you know, constantly reappraise it. So, you know, I think when, when you're starting out, you, you have high conviction in your own point of view and your own your own view on something but you don't you don't necessarily have the humility to you know admit when you were wrong or admit when something's changed where the facts have changed and i think what i've definitely learned over the years is that you need to constantly sort of take a fresh look at things be humble enough to let other people sort of take a fresh look at some one of your ideas and and challenge it and and not just sort of be rigid about thinking you're right and you know, I like to think I've learned that and I'm sort of fairly pragmatic now and with facts change, I'll, I'll change my view, but I probably wasn't like that when I first started. I think that's very good guidance. It's something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently, extrapolating between luck and skill is yeah. very yeah. difficult. Um, and final question, if there's one book recommendation you could give our listeners that it, that's influenced you. Okay, well, I'm actually, I'm going to go with a bit of recency bias because I've just been been reading it very, <laughs> the most recent book I've read, but um, it's called um, Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green. It's basically a, um, a, 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 I would like this, wouldn't I, because I'm a fund manager, but it's it's a, a guy who's gone around and interviewed various of the uh, the sort of most successful and, and uh, you know, 
um, long-term successful investors over the last sort of 50 years and and you know so he's gone and spent time with warren buffett and charlie munger people like that but also a, a whole host of others and trying to just take what is it about how they do things and that that has worked for them and then try and sort of distill that into a set of uh, you know, principles or or advice to people who so that they can try and in their own way emulate what they've done before, possibly not to the same degree of success or uh, or billions of dollars of profit that they made but and so it's just just fascinating just trying to you know, for him he's done a great job of of you know just demystifying what some of some of the people are doing it's just, and it's and it's not just about how do you make money as an investor, but it's also some some quite basic principles about how they live their lives and kind of how they how they think about the wider world and how they interact. Not not just about investing, which is quite a useful life lesson. So yeah, I agree. It's it's a it's a brilliant book. We actually had him on the podcast. Did you? A few, oh, okay. <laughs> a few months ago, so people can refer back if they want to. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, it was great. It was really drove home decision making, clarity of thought, and how to do that. And I think one takeaway I had was also it didn't necessarily improve the quality of their overall lives <laughs> some of them yeah true anyway ken thank you so much that was really interesting that was a great tour of the funds and your investment process and thank you for coming on thank you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend this is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.